Do you know the first book of the Bible chronologically is the book of Job? We think of Genesis as the first, but as far as timing, the book of Job is the first book of the Bible, and interestingly, it deals with the subject of suffering. Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, had this to say about the reality of suffering, so common in life. It says in Job 5, 7, a man is born for trouble, or humankind, born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you've ever built a fire, you know a fire produces sparks, and the sparks go up, and it, it just it's, it follows building a fire. And so, truly, life, or to live, is to suffer. And this is no surprise to us. We know that. We're surrounded by it. All you have to do is read the news, listen to the news, and what do you hear? Well, there's a murder in Atlanta, or this past week, tragically, deeply tragic, eight people murdered. Or there's a pileup on the freeway, and a large number of injuries. Or the constant, over this past year, the constant statistics telling us how many people have been infected by COVID and how many people have died. Or you hear the news from the Middle East and there's another terrorist attack. Perhaps some of our soldiers have been impacted by that terrorist attack. You hear statistics concerning the breakup of families, people that are dealing with depression, and it's all around us. In fact, it is such an avalanche that there are times when it almost seems like all this stuff is background noise. Until, until it's your loved one in ICU with COVID. Until it's a friend of yours who is injured in that pileup on the freeway. Until it is somebody that you love dealing with a breakup of a marriage or depression or some debilitating habit. Or until it's your brother or sister that's overseas and subject to a terrorist attack. Then, then it becomes very personal and it hits us with brute force. Now when we think of suffering, we automatically think of human suffering. That's what... Uh, the book of Job deals with. That's, so when we think of suffering, we tend to think of human suffering, and that's very natural. We have questions such as, where is God in all of this? Does he care? Why doesn't he do something about it? That's what the book of Job deals with, and those questions are okay, they are good, and God is not intimidated by those kinds of questions. You read the book of Job or you read the book of Psalms and you'll find that that's a regular refrain. However, in the discussion and debate on human suffering, I believe there's a question that's lost. In fact, it's a question that we may not even think of. And the question is this, what about God's suffering? Do you ever think of that? Now, there's, there's mystery here. And there's majesty in it. But you and I serve a God who knows suffering in the deepest and most pervasive degree. We serve a God who suffers. In fact, I've titled this message in particular, The Sufferer, because I hope you'll see in Scripture, both Old and New Testament this morning, that I believe He is the sufferer above all sufferers. But we don't tend to think of that. In fact, uh, just ask the question, do you ever consider and think about the suffering of God? 
And if you do, you may have this response. Well, I can understand, yes, we, we sing about it this morning. We sing about Christ and his suffering. And so, yes, God suffers, uh, but it's different than my suffering because he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's in control, and, and he can handle it. It's different with me. And, in fact, not only can he handle it, he chose it. I, I don't choose my suffering. But you see, that's the point. He chose it. He entered into it fully, wholeheartedly, without limit. And that speaks to us about our own suffering then. I've been rereading a book I read about seven or eight years ago called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And it's a book by Tim Keller. And in my opinion, one of the best I've read on this subject. Let me give you a quote, and I'll quote maybe a couple more times here. But uh, he says this, It is because God is all-powerful and sovereign that his suffering is so astonishing. If God were somehow limited or out of control, his suffering would not be so radically voluntary and therefore not so fully motivated by love. His suffering is radically voluntary. I tell you, I try to avoid suffering as much as I can. And when I'm in it, I want to be out of it as quickly as I can. I don't do it voluntarily. He did. And he does. And so what I want to do this morning is take a quick survey of the Old Testament and just excerpts, many more could be pointed to, but some excerpts of statements about the suffering of God. And then we see him coming into suffering in a very personal way in the Incarnation And so we'll take a quick survey of the New Testament, and as we do that, we'll look at some very key passages. And so, let's think about the God who suffers because he loves. You do understand that the the issue of love enters deeply into the question and the reality of suffering. The more you love, the more potential for suffering. You've heard the quote from C.S. Lewis, I'm sure. I read it a number of years ago in his book uh, entitled The Four Loves. But uh, listen again. A very profound statement, I believe, about this issue. Lewis says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure that of keeping it intact, that is keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Our granddaughters and daughter and son-in-law came over yesterday and they brought this beautiful little puppy, this gray puppy with smoky gray eyes. And, and they were cuddling it. And they gave me the opportunity to do that. And I know they're already connected. It's, it's a foster dog. That's a new concept. I worked for a veterinarian three years in high school and never heard of foster dogs. So they're fostering a, a dog, trying to decide are we going to adopt it. But, but this little guy, little gal, I'm sorry, uh, beautiful, beautiful, cuddly little puppy. How can you not love something like that? But the difficulty is, as they've already experienced, when you have a puppy, the puppy becomes an adult, and there's some difficulty that goes with that 
and then you keep the dog for a long time, you get attached to it, and then inevitably the dog dies. And your heart is wrung and broken over an animal. You see, that's what happens when you love. Who could love more than God loves? Therefore, I would suggest to you, because he loves perfectly, he suffers more intensely. And do we appreciate that? Do we think about that? So let's quickly do a review of some of the passages, and then after I've gone through these six, just to give you a quick review, I want to look at one key passage that was read earlier. Beginning in Genesis chapter 5, or rather 6, verse 5 and 6, these are listed on the screen, or will be, and if you want to write them down and, and refer to them later, but let me just review them for you. Genesis chapter 6, God had created the earth, created man, and placed man in the garden, and we know the story of the rebellion, the fall, and all the fallout that's come from the fall. And so in Genesis chapter 6, just a few chapters into the scripture and into the story of creation, uh, the whole thing had gone awry. And the way it's described in scripture is that it's like this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw the, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every, listen to this, every imagination of his heart was only evil continually. So God in his great wrath called out against mankind and destroyed them from the face of the earth and said, I'm done with that. Never going to do that again. Is that what it says? Now, this is God's response to that open rebellion where the, every imagination of the heart is only evil continually. It says, and the Lord God was sorry that he had made man on the earth. The word sorry, the sorrow, is, is a feeling word. It's an emotion word. This is how God felt about what he was seeing in this creation that he made and he loved. And then it said, this is phenomenal, and he was grieved in his heart. And in the original language, it means just that. He was grieved. You've experienced grief. You know what it is. I've experienced it. Going through it right now, been to two funerals, this just in the past two days, and going to a visitation from my brother on Tuesday. We know grief, but we know, don't know grief the way God knows grief. He was grieved in his heart. Then you move to Judges. Centuries later, God had brought the Jewish nation into, into being and he loved them. They're his special people, the apple of his eye. And they did the same thing that you read about in Genesis chapter 6. And they went through this cycle of sin and rebellion, the suffering that comes with it, the repentance that results in God's restoration and deliverance. And it was over, you, you've read it, up and down, over and over and over again, this continuous cycle. And in the book of Judges, you're well into the book, four or five times, it says, and they did evil again. And you come to verse 15 and 16, it says, and the children of Israel said to the Lord, after suffering the effects of their rebellion and sin, the children of Israel said to the Lord, Lord, we've sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you, but deliver us. Please deliver us. Bring relief. 
And so they put away their foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord and his, listen to this description. This is the suffering of God. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. His soul could, now the, the misery of Israel was brought on itself. But it says his soul could no longer endure. You know what it's like to have a child that rebels maybe. Or have a parent that goes off the rails. And you love them. And you know the depth of the breaking, brokenness of your heart over the brokenness of their life. And you and I are fallible human beings. Imagine what the perfect God experiences when he sees that in his children. And by the way, uh, we're looking here at passages where people are suffering because of their own rebellion and sin. And if he feels this way about those who are in rebellion, what does he feel about those who are suffering because of somebody else's rebellion? How does he feel about those who are walking with him and are faithful to him, but yet they have the fallout and the effects of living in a fallen world? If he feels this way about them, what must he feel about his faithful children? Then we move to Isaiah 63. Another occasion when the Lord is actually giving hope to people, even as he's telling them about the judgment he's going to have to bring because of their sin. And listen to the description of how God feels about it. In Isaiah 63, 9, I would suggest you read maybe verses 5 to 15 in that passage, but just this one verse, it says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. What an incredible statement. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The word afflicted means a narrow place that that tight spot that they were in because of the wrong, wrong choices, God was feeling that about them. It says, And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. Two more words that are packed with emotion and feeling. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. A kind parent taking care of his children, even when they're misbehaving. Then you move to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20. And here it uses the word Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. And they also are in disobedience. And it asks the question, is Ephraim my dear son? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Ephraim is my dear son. Is he a pleasant child? Yes, he is a pleasant child. These are God's people. He created them. He loved them with an everlasting love. And then it says, For though I spoke against them, I earnestly remember them still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. And the word yearn there is a word that actually means to cry out. It's not just something internal, but it's something that's outwardly expressed. And perhaps you've seen sometimes on television the uh, the wailing women in the Middle East. And that's the idea we have here, that, that God doesn't just hold this in, in a stoic kind of manner, but he is a God who expresses the incredible yearning and caring for his people. You move to Lamentations chapter 3, and, and in this chapter there's, there's that wonderful statement that his mercies are new every morning. But down in verse 31 to 33, it says this, The Lord will not cast off forever. 
For though he causes grief, and he does, he brings discipline to his children. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion. How? According to the multitude of his mercies. Words again, packed with meaning, feeling, emotion. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. And then one more. In this amazing story in Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, where God intentionally brings into Hosea's life a woman who would end up being very unfaithful. Some describe her as a prostitute, but she didn't even step up to that level. She didn't demand payment for it. She just freely gave herself to to men all over and turned her back on Hosea. And the Lord uses that incredibly painful picture to describe his faithfulness and his love to his people, even though they are unfaithful. So he intentionally gives this picture of intense suffering, of being rejected and uh, of pain, and yet his love remains in the strongest degree. And so within this story, uh, we have these words from Hosea 11, 8 and 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come with terror. That's the love of God. That's the suffering of God in the Old Testament. And we could look at many others. But let's go to Isaiah 53, where the scripture reading was this morning. You've heard this over and over. You've heard it taught on. But again, I want you to to think about the words that describe how God feels. Now, this is predicting the coming sufferer, the one who is the sufferer. But listen to these words again. and, and, And let me just emphasize the description here of God's suffering. Isaiah 53, 3, he, was, he is despised. You ever felt despised by someone, just looked down on and mocked? That doesn't come into your life lightly. You don't just shrug that off. Especially the closer the person is to you, the more important they are to you. He is despised, rejected by men and women. He's a man of sorrows. He suffers. Acquainted with grief. And the word acquainted here is, means to deeply know. It's not just a passing acquaintance. And we hid as it were our faces from him. We turned our back on him. He was despised, it says again. And we did not respect or esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs. Now if he's borne our griefs, that means he's grieving also. He carried our sorrows. How wonderful to go to two funerals this past week and have the hope of the gospel be shared and to know that this is true, that, that those two families that are suffering deeply this week, God knows their sorrows. He carries their sorrows. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded wounded in the deepest, most tragic way 
wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And this, by the way, happened both physically, because it really happened to his body when Christ came in a, in a body, the incarnation, which we're going to think about in a moment. Uh, but what we don't think about is that this happened spiritually. This happened deep within the core of his being. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth. He didn't offer self-defense. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And his grave was made with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. We are grieved, I am, and I'm sure you, you could identify, we're grieved because of our suffering. When you experience a loss of a loved one, when you experience illness, uh, when you walk through depression or whatever it may be, uh, you grieve over that. You grieve because you are suffering. God's grief is different, and it's deeper. He grieves because of the source of our suffering, and He knows the source of it. Either our own personal sin or because we're impacted by somebody else's sin or because we simply live in a world that's broken. And we suffer because of the brokenness of the world. Thankfully, in Romans chapter 8, the Lord says one day that's going to be taken care of. All the groaning of creation, all the groaning that we experience is going to be wiped away. It's going to be taken care of. But until then, it's there and it's real. We grieve because we suffer. He grieves because of the suffering of his people and because of the source of it. Another quote from... Uh, this wonderful book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Since we all know hard involvement leads to suffering, the more you love someone, the more the person's grief become, and pain becomes yours. And so even in the first chapters of Genesis, we see God is suffering because of our suffering, because of the misery of the world. Now here we have no abstract deity, no quote-unquote, divine principle or rational structure behind the universe, this philosophical language to try to explain the distancing of God from suffering if you even believe he exists. There's no divine principle here, no rational structure behind the universe. This is not merely the spark of divine life and every living thing. This is the transcendent but personal God who loves so much that his heart is filled with pain over us. This is the suffering of God that I think we rarely consider because we're so caught up in our own. And God, thankfully, God understands that. He knows it. Now let's turn over to Philippians because Isaiah 53 predicts the coming sufferer. And Philippians chapter 2 describes what it meant to him. The place that he left and what he entered into. And he did it for you. He did it for me. Philippians chapter 2. Again, these are familiar words to you. 
But it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? What did he have in mind? What was his thinking? What was the thinking of God as he comes in flesh, as the incarnation takes place? Because incarnation means suffering, because to live is to suffer. And by the way, to love is to suffer. As Lewis said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And that's something to be grasped and held on to at all cost. But he made himself willingly, fully, openly choosing himself to do this. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. If you've ever had a low-paying job, a, a, a job that seemed like just didn't matter, or in this day, the, the, the indentured servants, or even in our own history, slavery, he, he, he entered into that fully. He knows it. He feels it. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in likeness of man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient. Just how obedient was he? To the point of death. Even, the emphasis here, even death on a cross. The most cruel, the most intense, uh, the most despicable kind of evil could be done against a human being. The cross. Even death on a cross. This is the suffering of God. Now, let's take a quick survey of a few New Testament examples of his suffering. Christmas, we always talk about baby Jesus in the manger. But do you think, or have you thought about what that really meant to Mary and Joseph and to Jesus himself? Luke 2.7 says there's no room for him in the end. I tried to think of a parallel for, for our modern mind, and and the best I could come up with is a young father, mother, a pregnant lady uh, come to town and, and they want to find a room to stay while waiting out the rest of the pregnancy and can't find anything, really can't afford anything. And so where would the baby be born in our culture? Probably the back seat of a car. What would that have meant? What would that have meant? to Christ and his family to be born that way. It goes on uh, speaking about uh, his life in, in Matthew. It says when around maybe two years old, a little, little older, ended up being a refugee in Egypt. There are refugee camps all over, the, all over the world currently. And I cannot imagine what it's like to be totally uprooted from all that's familiar, lose everything you have, and go to some foreign country and have to live there. But his family were refugees early on in Egypt, as the scripture describes. And then he said of himself, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I don't believe Christ was homeless in the way we describe homelessness today because he had friends and people all around him that gave him a place to stay, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus being uh, one family that did that. But he purposely did not come to own property 
to set up shop. He, was, he, he purposely had no place to lay his head. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? I can remember when I was in around first grade, and our family was going through a very hard time, and we were kicked out of the house that we lived in, and the landlord came and took all our furniture and set it out on the curb. And so me and my brother and my little sister and my mother stood there by furniture, not knowing where we were going to go. I can remember to this day, though I was a little guy, how that felt and how incredibly embarrassing it was to have your friends drive by. He purposely chose to have nowhere to lay his head. Think about the temptation. Remember, it says that he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, and Satan came in to tempt him. Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever wrestled with temptation and, and, and just wished you could be rid of it? The intense pain, emotionally and spiritually, that brings you. Christ was tempted, and Hebrews says, in all points, as we are, yet without sin. So much so that after it was all over, so exhausted, the angels had to come and minister to him. John chapter 4, when he traveled, he became weary, had to sit down by a well, and it was an opportunity for ministry, but he actually phys physically experienced weariness, Matthew 13, 57 says he was speaking to a group of people after being rejected by his own people and says a prophet has no honor in his own country. They're, they're so familiar with me, they think they know. And they reject it. His own family doubted him. It says his own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him initially. And it goes on to say in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, some people in his home country said, this guy's out of his mind. It's crazy. Have anybody, anybody mock you or call you crazy because of your faith? So, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Then we come to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross and the crucifixion. And clearly we're, we're on holy ground here. How can any of us even begin to think we know or understand? So I deal with this saying, Lord, you know that I don't understand this, but, but I read it and, and, I, and, and my, my heart is heavy, not because God needs pity. When we talk about God's suffering, he's not asking for pity like you would somebody else who's suffering. That's not it. He entered into it wholeheartedly, fully, all part of his plan. So he, he doesn't need pity. But we need to understand his suffering if we're going to have a context for understanding our own. He was forsaken by the Father. It says that in, in the Gospels that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and it says he being in agony cried out to the point under such stress that he sweat great drops of blood. That was before he ever went to the cross. And then he goes to the cross and the next to the last thing he said is, he asked the question that Job asked, the first book of the Bible, the question that you and I ask, God, why is this happening? Where are you? Do you care? Why don't you do something about it? Now, he didn't say all that, but he did say, my God, my God. Didn't call him Father, by the way. Every other passage when he's addressing uh, in prayer, he calls him Father. Here he says, my God. 
my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't, I just cannot comprehend that, that God would place himself in a position to come in a body and in essence, turn his back on himself. And to experience a separation that is unimaginable so that you and I would not have to be separated from him or from one another. But this is the epitome of suffering. Because in this, the Lord took upon himself the penalty for every kind of evil, every result of the fall, all causes for suffering, all sickness, all death, all depression, all estrangement, anything that you can imagine that you read about, you hear about, that you're familiar with personally, he took on himself in that moment of time and God the Father turned his back on him and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he knew, but yet in his humanity he experienced it. We worship the sufferer. There's nothing, absolutely nothing you and I could walk through that he has not experienced And it came to the epitome of it in the garden and on the cross. And his final words were then, it's finished. It's done. This issue is taken care of. Sin is taken care of. And eventually, it'll be turned around, Romans 8 and Revelation 22. But right now, we can say with absolute authority, it's, it's finished. It's done. Sin is taken care of. All the causes for suffering is taken care of. And therefore, it is the epitome, the height of arrogance for you or for me to ever imagine that there's anything that we can do in, in matter of good works or sincerity or prayer or church attendance or kind deeds that will add to the finished work of Christ. No way. Nothing you and I can contribute. The only thing we can contribute is our sin, and he took that and paid for it and says, finished, finished, done, over, 100%. The only thing you can do is now believe it. Trust that he did it for you. And you can be forever, no longer separated, but joined to him eternally as John has been teaching. And then you have his resources to deal with suffering. And one last quote from this book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. The New Testament shows us that virtually every kind of evil was thrown at Jesus at the end of his life. He was abandoned, betrayed, denied by friends. He was handed over by a fickle mob. He was given a sham trial, was tortured, and killed. A victim of injustice. Not a helpless victim, but an intentional victim of injustice. Do we hear anything about injustice today? Christ knows, God knows injustice. On display was the whole range of sin and malevolence, cowardice, lies, vested interest, nationalism, racism, corrupt religious and political institutions, and behind it all, the power of Satan himself. Christopher Wright sums it up well. Quote, The cross was the worst that human and non-human evil and rebellion could throw against God. God is a God who suffers because he loves. But the God who suffers 
also can give you and me help because he understands. He's been there. And so let me sum up with uh, just an illustration from a hymn and then uh, and three quick points. Years ago, we had a pianist uh, named Betty Abercrombie, uh, the life of lady. She and James were longtime members of Grace, and uh, she played the piano for us for years and years. Uh, didn't play what we're playing today because she, she loved the old hymns, and that's what she, uh, she played for us. But she introduced us, me in particular, then the church, to a song that I'd never heard before. It's an old one. Uh, dating back to the turn of the century, but I'd never heard it until Betty introduced it to us. And it deals with this issue that we're talking about. Does God understand? Does he care? And let me just read the verses and then read the chorus. This is called, Does Jesus Care? So it's really a series of questions. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when the way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief there is no relief, though the tears flow all the night long. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he care? And the chorus, oh yes. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know, I know my Savior cares. We know He cares. We know He cares because He's been where you are. He's been where I am. He entered into it, Philippians 2. Predicted in Isaiah 53, entered into it, Philippians 2. And now the Hebrews passage that we didn't look at. Let me read it to you, because this is profound. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears. When he lifted up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him. Christ to God the Father. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I puzzled over that statement for years and years and years. I still can't comprehend and explain it. But to the best I understand, this is unique in all of eternity, that God becomes a man and subjects himself to suffering so that he learned obedience. Now, how could a perfect God learn obedience? I can't fully explain it, but he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So that tells me that he's been where I am, he knows, and therefore, suffering is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for being refined, as Proverbs chapter 17 says. 
the refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but God tests the heart. And he does it not to punish. He does it to purify. He does it to build. He does it to make us better. He learned obedience through the things he suffered, so certainly I must. He's been where I am. Do you understand that uh, this is very unique in all religions? That God would become man and that he would suffer? You read the, the Muslim religion, and they, cannot, they can't comprehend this. It, just, it doesn't make sense. Allah would not subject himself to human hands and make himself a victim of suffering. He stands apart from that. He stands distant from it. He is the holy, sovereign God who's in control of all things, and he would not place himself in that position. They, they reject it outright because they cannot believe that God would do such a thing. But this is the very core and the crux of our faith, that he became man. He went through what we went through. Then he died to take the penalty and, and, and provide the eventual full solution to suffering. And so this then helps us to open our understanding to the benefits of God's suffering for us, but it also helps us to be able to better receive uh, the help that he offers and the benefits of our own suffering because he's been where we are. Secondly, he is touched by our grief and he offers present help. Right in the same book, the book of Hebrews, it says this about Christ, and he's described here as our great high priest. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are. All points, yet without sin. So understanding that, what should be the result? What should be our response? Well, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't deserve it, just as the Jewish people didn't deserve it. But he opens the way for us, come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's touched by our weakness and our griefs, and he offers help. And then last. He presently carries, this is amazing, he presently carries the wounds and scars, our wounds and scars in his own. One of the most profound visions of Christ after his resurrection was when he appeared and Thomas is there and he he wasn't sure about this resurrection thing. And the Lord graciously appeared to him and he says, Thomas, reach here your hand and put it in my hand, my wounds. Reach your hand and put it into my side. He still had the wounds after the resurrection. Isn't that incredible? And so as I understand it, that's a resurrection body. He still carries those. And within that, according to Isaiah 53, he carries your griefs, your sorrows, my griefs, my sorrows, our sin, our rebellion, and the payment for them. The evidence is there, even in heaven. He's the sufferer. So don't ever doubt. I encourage you, please don't ever doubt. And don't ever wonder, does God care? Does he understand? Is he even anywhere close? Oh, yes. He cares, and he's right there with you. No, you won't always feel it. 
But that's, isn't that the line of faith? We take God at his word and the evidence that he's given. So wherever you are right now, whether you're listening online or here, he's been there. He's done it. He understands. And he's there to help. And one day, thankfully, all this stuff will be resolved. It'll all be over. Until then, he wants to use it to make us better. More like him. And isn't that really what we all want? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this truth that is so clear from your word, but yet impossible for us to wrap our minds around and and to fully comprehend. And so we, we ask for your help. Lord, when we experience the heartache and suffering that are part of life and part of loving people, Lord, may our minds immediately go to you and know that you do know, you understand, you've been where we are and, and you are touched and, and you are our source, you are our refuge, our help, our strength, our healer. You've carried it all for us. So Lord, rather than question you or reject you, may we draw close to you and let you carry us and teach us through these experiences. May you test and purify and build our faith. We ask this in the gracious, loving, saving name of our suffering Savior. Amen.